You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to ACCA and to this evening's program, Chance Composition, Haroon Mirza and James Rushford in Conversation. My name is Annika Christensen, and I'm Senior Curator here at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art and Curator of the 2019 ACCA International Exhibition, Haroon Mirza, The Construction of an Act. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land on which we meet this evening. I extend my respects to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us here for tonight's conversation. Haroon Mirza, The Construction of an Act, is presented in partnership with the Melbourne International Arts Festival and brings new commissions into dialogue with representations of Mirza's recent work to provide a choreographed experience of the artist's diverse interests and applications across the last decade. As a central new commission, a dedicated studio, which you can see here behind me, has been constructed for local and international collaborators to undertake a series of week-long residencies in composition, music and dance. These residencies will culminate in a live, one-off performance on Tuesday the 8th of October at 6.30pm, presented with the generous support of Liquid Architecture and the JMC Academy. Loosely structured on the Azan, the Islamic call to prayer, Mirza has scripted a science fiction narrative with references to nature, artificial intelligence, psychedelic substances, and the healing potential of song as a provocation for each studio resident. Through the residencies, Mirza's original script will be transformed, initially into a composition by James Rushford, who began his residency here with us today, then workshopped by Rushford with musicians Jessica Azodi, Alexander Garsden, and Freya Shack Arnott, who will be in residence next week and finally interpreted into movement by choreographer Julie Cunningham, working with dancer Chess Bowie, who will be working here on site from Tuesday the 1st until Saturday the 5th of October. Haroon Mirza, The Construction of an Act, thus opens as a studio and as a stage that's set for action, the nature of which will only be revealed in the process of its eventual enacting. The following week, we are pleased to host two writers-in-residence, Chi Tran and Arben Zika, who have been commissioned by Liquid Architecture for their new arts journal, Disclaimer, to develop a written response to the exhibition and performance. Disclaimer are also here tonight recording this conversation for publication within the journal. And both these texts will also feature in Haroon's exhibition catalogue. And we thank Liquid Architecture for generously sharing resources and ideas, including the initial suggestion of James Rushford as a composer to respond to the exhibition. And thanks to Joel Stern especially for that. We're lucky to have Haroon here tonight for his last presentation in Australia before handing the show over to us and the studio over to the residents. And so by way of a brief introduction, I'll just do a quick bio on both of our speakers. So London-based Haroon Mirza has an extensive and varied art practice that encompasses sculptural, sculptural assemblage, immersive installation and live performance. Mirza's practice has its origin in music and is partially informed by the artist's experience as a DJ. Mirza likens his methodology to that of a composer, arranging both, both the aesthetic and acoustic properties of materials and space into new audible, visual and haptic forms. Mirza graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Art in Painting from the Winchester School of Art in 2002, a Master of Design, Critical Practice and Theory from Goldsmiths College in London in 2006, and a Master of Fine Art from Chelsea College of Art and Design, also in London in 2007. His work has been widely exhibited internationally to significant critical acclaim, including the award of Silver Lion at the 54th Venice Biennale in 2011, the Nam June Pike Art Centre Prize in 2014, the Calder Art Prize in 2015 and the Collide International Award in 2017, which led to a two-month residency in 2018 at CERN in Switzerland, the world's largest particle physics lab. James Rushford is an Australian composer-performer, largely based in Melbourne in between international residencies and projects. Rushford's work is drawn from a familiarity with specific concrete, improvised, avant-garde and collagist languages. Currently, his work deals with the aesthetic concept of musical shadow. James hold, holds a doctorate from the California Institute of the Arts in Los Angeles and was a 2018 fellow at Academy Schloss Solitude in Stuttgart. As a composer, Rushford has been commissioned by a wide range of organisations and festivals, including the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, Melbourne International Arts Festival, 
Ultima Festival in Oslo, and Unsound Festival in New York. And as a performer, he's presented work in numerous festivals, concert venues, and art galleries internationally. Tonight, Haroon and James come together as artists and collaborators to discuss the exhibition, shared interests, and their individual practices. Following their conversation, there'll be a chance to take questions from the floor, which my colleague Miriam Kelly will facilitate with a roving mic. To get things started, though, I just wanted to uh, propose <laughs> that we think about the idea of chance, which is referred to in the title of this evening's event and that I had, that, that, sorry, that has, I think, dictated some of the making of this exhibition. As curator, I think of this exhibition, the residencies and the eventual performance almost like a game of exquisite corpse, with each collaborator adding to the composition, but only at the end of the previous person's contribution. So as the artist, Tarun, you've left this exhibition as a proposition, which James then responds to as a composer and hands over to the musicians and then is interpreted into dance by Julie Cunningham. So in that sense, there is a lot that's left up to chance and not one of us is totally in control of anything other than our own contributions which are handed on to one another. And this also involves a lot of trust as well and I would say a lot of openness to the unexpected. So Haroon, I wondered perhaps if you could begin by talking about if or how chance has informed your thinking about the exhibition and James, also, if you might then like talk, to talk about how your role in the interpretation of the exhibition and then kind of creatively adding your own, you know, flavour to it might differ from your usual methodology as a composer. So, Haroon, over to you to start tonight's conversation. Thanks, Annika, for a lovely warm introduction. Um, and I guess, yeah, the, the thing about chance, it's, it's um, super interesting. I, I guess I didn't really think about chance uh, during the sort of making of this exhibition. Um, but chance plays a big part of my practice, I guess, um, from when I first started studying, you know, back in... When I did my undergraduate, so back in 99... Um, looking at obviously people like Cage and Stockhausen, because I think in, in, in somehow in music there's probably a more um, uh, kind of uh, rigorous. I mean, I feel like there's more, a more rigorous engagement with, with chance. Um, you know, and then reading um, people like James Gleick and uh, you know his book Chaos and thinking about chaos theory, leading on to like fractal geometry and all kinds of things. But I guess. For now, those things have, uh, or these days, for me, those things have become sort of latent in my in my work, and not something that I probably think about on a on a everyday level, but more sort of a, a sort of a subtext that's, or an undercurrent that's always there. Um, but I think somehow, like meeting you, James, you know, is is a chance, is, is chance occasion in itself because, you know, I didn't know your work before, and and. Um, and you know, uh, being introduced, you know, or, or Joel actually from Liquid Architecture, I didn't know either. But but by coming to Australia and doing this, working on this exhibition through um, the team here at Acker, uh, Annika and Max and everyone else, it meant that I could be introduced to people, and that's a kind of chance encounter in itself, I guess. But then at the same time, there's always this part of me that um, thinks about this notion that there, maybe there is no chance, maybe everything... Because sometimes you, or you get this feeling that, oh, it's just something is meant to be. You know, and that's like the interesting thing with chance or working with chance for me, that there may be something that random that happens, but you somehow feel this feeling of, um, oh, yeah, but that's, that, that's meant to be there. And that feeling of chance suddenly disappears, which is quite crippling at the same time. I don't know if you ever have that with your work. Um, I do. I, I, I'm still kind of interested in whether chance for you, if, if it's something that you consciously sort of put into the work or allow for in the work. I mean, you sort of talked about it as a kind of undercurrent um, in your thinking. But yeah. with something like this, there's a sort of gap that needs to be filled, I suppose, by the collaborative process. And is that, do you see that as a kind of chance thing or do you see it more as something else? Yeah, it's both a chance thing. <clears throat> I mean, in a way, there's, it's funny the element, like, 
we, uh, the element of control. You know, we were discussing it earlier in the relationship between recording and doing things live. You have more control when you do some when you record things, and the live element is the element of chance always. But I, I guess, you know, there's also a trust. You know, so like meeting you and you know meeting Joel and meeting and knowing Julie from working with her before. Um, you know, there's, there's chance, but there's also a trust and an excitement about what you might do, you know, so um, the chance is, the chance element or the unknown, it's like, it's like embracing the unknown, not having a fear of the unknown and just embracing it, and that chance element turns into excitement, um, and that's kind of great, you know, but then I'm thinking about the Google Home device in here, where the chance element, you know, I didn't know it was going to behave the way it's behaving. So, by the, so just in case you don't know, um, there's a Google Home device which is live, and the video, which is a kind of avatar of me, I guess, speaks to the Google Home device and it responds. <clears throat> um, in in the UK, when I was making the work, it responded to me when I greeted it uh, with uh, with the term "Assalamu alaikum," which is you know a, you know a greeting, an Islamic greeting. And it would say, Walaikum Salam, which is the obvious response. But for some reason here, it just plays some random Arabic music. And, uh, and, you know, so, and, it's, and it's super interesting. And, that, you know, and that's something that's happened with chance, which is actually super interesting. But I was, I was like, I'm, out of con you know, I'm not in control here. You know? So there's this kind of thing. So it took me you know, a, a day or two to come to terms with it. But that's, the, but that's also the beauty of chance. You know, you kind of... Sometimes the more um, unfamiliar it is, the, I mean, it just, the longer it takes to kind of come to terms with it. But somehow, I mean, although I'm unfamiliar with your work, I'm familiar with the idea that, you know, you, you're really, you know what you're doing, you know, so that kind of makes it easier somehow. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, I think, and also just to um, respond to what Annika said earlier um, when she asked about how this process is different for me. Um, I think, you know, typically I would imagine chance, I guess, like you were talking about with Cage, Stockhausen, this kind of history, especially in formal kind of Western art music, it can be seen as either this kind of like, you know, proposition for allowing the outside in or, or sort of looking outward. Um, but for me, it's less about a material kind of aspect of chance and more about a framing. And I think there's something really um, lovely about what you said then because um, as I was walking around the space today, getting familiar to the sound of, of everything, because I've got this studio in here, but there's quite a lot of spill from the um, exhibition. So I was thinking, how the fuck am I gonna like, you know, <laughs> think through this? And I realized that it seeps in, right? It's, a, it's gonna seep into the thinking. And I think um, I'm less interested in sort of thinking about it as material that I can't control, but more in sort of ma material that's gonna change the framing and the reference of the work. And it's a, again, it reminds me of what you said about the Google Home device yeah. that, you know, interpretation, it's the interpretation and this kind of problem of trust and, and framing and reference that I think is going to come to life in this exhibition. And it's a really strange situation for me. Um, you know, typically a composer, I guess, often works writing for an ensemble or an interpreter of some kind. And this, I'm sort of in the position of both the interpreter and the composer, but then that interpretation gets fed back into the work and is sort of interacting or interjecting with the exhibition. So there's this very strange pathway that's going to unfold. Yeah, it's super interesting because I, you know, and I never really thought about it until now hearing you speak, that actually the, the analogue or the analogy for a blank canvas in music is silence. And there's actually no silence here. So it's kind of a bit weird for you to kind of, you know, for someone that starts with silence to then, you know, and, and, and get rid of that silence to then but start with already something that's not silent. It's much better to not start with silence. <laughs> you always start but, within a world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a ground. I mean, people can, I think in music, we often talk about silence as a kind of ground or a kind of sky, like, mm. you know, to be a bit simple about yeah, it. But yeah, yeah, sure. I think... Um, for me, it's this is really an environment and mm. a kind of atmosphere that will seep into the world of the music, and um, that's a blank canvas in a sense. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great. Too. Do you think, though, um, 
I mean, this question of silence, you think there ever is, because there isn't really ever silence. Like, I mean, does silence actually exist? Maybe in, you know, out, when you leave the atmosphere, there's something mm-hmm. that could be regarded as silence. But also, you know, your brain starts to make up sound if you're, you know, if you go in an anechoic chamber, if you sit in an anechoic chamber after, you know, very a short amount of time, you start to have hallucinations, both visual and auditory, that, like, it doesn't really exist, silent mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's like this concept. I mean, it exists physically, but, like, uh, perceptually, it's, it's kind of a grey area. So, um, and, the, and the same could be said, I guess, with, a, I'm digressing a bit, but, like, the same could be said with a, with a blank canvas, you know. There is never really a, a blank canvas, I guess. And um, so I guess the question, yeah, the question here would be like what, you know, yeah, it, it, is there like a shift in the sort of goalposts of, of what we regard as, you know, a starting point, uh, you know, a space or a time frame to work in? I think absolutely. And I think it comes from perception and the perspective of the creator, right, and the mm. audience. I mean, I have to find a perspectival kind of angle, if that makes sense, yeah. to enter this work and, and make within it. Um, so, yeah, again, I guess I'm less interested in sort of the materiality of it and mm. the science of it or sort of... But, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is a bit early to jump into this, but the big question that kind of comes back in the work I've seen is this tension between the sort of... I guess, like, reification of sound or the sort of modelling or, ma- or making an image of sound and then the impossibility of that measurement. So, mm. I mean, even that very first piece with the temple bowls mm. is immediately got this tension. Um, are you interested in this kind of idea of reification or are you more interested in the problem of the tension between the measurable and immeasurable? Yeah, it's probably more to do with the measurable and immeasurable just because, um, yeah, I mean, if I was, you know I, I, you know, I kind of end up having to think with different hats on, you know, uh, the sort of, the rational side of me would think, oh, everything is measurable, but, you know, the sort of more kind of free side of me would think that things aren't measurable. So that, I think that tension is kind of more important somehow than the reification. Um, but I think that's a, but I think that's an interesting point that you bring up because perhaps, I mean, that, that's a thing that could be, I mean, is it interesting for you, the reification? So, you know, this is like the thing that hands over is something different, you know, the, because, the, you know, I kind of feel like what I've um, installed in this space is one thing, but then the reception of that is always, you know, invariably different. And of course, it is going to be for you know everyone that encounters the work, but also you. But you're going to be so immersed in the work, like you spent the day, you know, today, um, sitting, sitting with the work and absorbing it. And um, I guess what you get out of it is kind of. It's, that's the interesting part for me, in a way. This sort of, and it goes. I guess it harkens a little bit back to um, Roland Barthes and Death of the Author. You know, this idea that once it's once it's out there, then it's the author becomes irrelevant. You know, I, when I ask Google my name, you know, it tells me that my name is irrelevant, which <laughs> which is kind of, you know, uh, which is the. Which is really great, you know. Uh, I mean, this is an engineered thing, you know, because I've, you know, when I was like setting it up, I was like, you know, it's irrelevant, you know, that's not, the, <laughs> that's not the point here. But so, but then to hear it respond like that kind of is this um, interesting thing. And on the on the interview, you have um, Michael Pollan and um, and uh, Carl Harris talking about um, ego and ego death, you know, and. Um, and uh, I think I think those things are kind of, you know, those are these narratives that I sort of was toying around with. But then, what you end up, you know, gleaning from the work is different, which which then kind of like, you know, that's the excitement. 
<laughs> what but do you is think? there a, is there a sort of universality that you're trying to highlight to any of this? You know, with sound healing, with sound y perception. Yeah, I guess. Um, you know, I said in the talk at um, at the art school the other day that you know I try and leave ideology out of my work as much as I can, and then David questioned that actually. I think he's here, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and in this piece, I think there's actually quite a lot of sort of ideology in it, and uh, which I, which I, which I'm really uncomfortable with. You know, um, I try not to take a position on these things because I always have a sort of double-edged, you know, feeling about you know, like so these, you know, can are there certain frequencies that stimulate pineal function or you know or are capable of healing i don't know um is it done through these methods i don't know do, do psychedelics are psychedelics you know or or plant medicines um appropriate forms of healing you know i don't know but that question but that, that questioning is kind of like for me sort of building some kind of ideology but then it's an ideology based on the it's an ideology based on the sort of um, uh, non-existence of truth, you know, or the idea that well, what the idea we have of truth, you know, maybe yeah, there is a universal truth that, you know, if you think about time and space, you know, the Big Bang occurred, and this all this stuff happened for millions of years, and suddenly we appear, and so on and so forth, and there might be this ultimate truth in terms of lineage that we can sort of pinpoint, but it's through the perspective of so, you know, for now, around seven and a half billion people. So how can there be a singular truth, you know, in terms of communicating that truth through language? Um, but then there is this idea, there is a notion of belief, you know, and you, can, you, you have to be able to believe, believe things. So that's, I guess, the only thing that I can think that really is a thing that I would trying to communicate that, uh, which isn't a thing, it's almost like a non-thing, I guess. Um, and, I, and I kind of wish and I hope that I wasn't really communicating anything. I know that sounds bizarre, but, you know, <laughs> I wasn't communicating anything knowingly, but there's something that happens on a sub-level or a meta-level that is being communicated. And by, and by opening that out to others, whether it's AI or or other human beings, then that's a more sort of fluid and concise narrative. I don't know. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I think there's um, something striking about the aesthetic of this work. On the one hand, I mean, to me at least, seeming kind of clean and fixed and somehow objective in this sense, or this like rationalist sense or whatever, when you're dealing with these measurable things or, or just voltage or something like this, um, versus this kind of messiness of multi-perspectival presentation, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, Google Home and interviews with people and singers and, and obviously then the collaborative side of things. And um, I guess that's something that really excites me, the messiness of it, and I think that is a collaborative... Oh necessity, you know. <laughs> um, is there a kind of aesthetic image with this? Kind of messiness versus yeah, I fixedness guess, or cleanness? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess there is. I, you know, just thinking about my, you know, previous work, there's always this kind of order that comes from some kind of mess, you know. Um, like, I guess that goes, you know, we can talk about chaos again, you know, and, and chance in that sense. Um, um, yeah, so, yeah, there, there, there is that which is probably inherent just in the way that I work. You know, I'm not really, I don't really fetishize things. I'm almost, you know, um, I don't get too wound up in, you know, you know, I do and I don't, you know, there's like, it's, all, it's almost a constant battle to kind of let go, you know, mm -hmm. D don't worry too much about how those cables look or how this, you know, piece of wood looks or, you know, that something might even be dusty or, you know, or there's like still the wrapping of a um, uh, Ikea shelf <laughs> on, the, on the shelf itself, you know, and it's almost like a challenge to myself to kind of like, can I just, you know, can I just like not, you know, can I do that, you know? 
Um, and that's kind of rewarding. I mean, that's, I guess that's my, uh, yeah, a little bit into my process. Um, I mean, what do you think in terms of your process? Would you, do you, ha is there something of that in your, because, you know, when we first met, there was a, I felt like there was a shared sensibility, but I couldn't really pinpoint <laughs> what it was, but. I think I tend to think very aesthetically and I think in terms of sort of sensibility and affect and sound and I'm quite sentimental with sound. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm so into mess. I don't like, I'm always really, I mean, I went to this school in California and, you know, it has this um, tradition of experimental music, you know, in an American sense, being a very institutionalized experimentalism. And so many works were minimal in the sense that, you know, the procedure was audible in the work. People were always making sound where it's like the piece is this structure and you hear the structure and that's the piece. And I always sort of just feel like something's missing. And I, I work with structure and I work with form, but I always have to have something that messes it up. And that's not just to um, confuse the listener or anything like that, but it's to kind of confound the form itself. Like, Yeah, what is that? Where does that come from? Because I find myself doing that quite a lot. You know, if something's too clean and precise, it's like, let's fuck it up a bit. I don't know, and I don't know where it comes from. I remember someone who was it. I read an interview or saw an interview about with Mike Kelly, I think it was, and he literally just said that. You know, if it's if it's too nice, I have to like fuck it up. Mm -hmm. And but I don't know where that comes from. Is it like a is it like an insecurity about? I don't know. <laughs> where does it? Come I feel from? it in my gut. Like I really feel like I can hear when it's too clean. Really? Yeah, I don't think it's a self-conscious thing. But is it something to do with, like, pr production, you know, something being too produced? or It can too... be. It can also just be the thinking itself behind the making. Mm. If the thinking's too clean or too straightforward, I think it then becomes it's... less interesting yeah, to it's me. Boring. You know? And that could be throwing in a wild card formally, mm. like a way that sabotages your thinking, or it could be a material thing, yeah. like a particular sound source. And I think in the case of this project... I've got both, like, I've got actual sounds that I have no control over um, that are completely outside of an aesthetic that I usually work within. And I've also got your thinking permeating, <laughs> like, the way I'm going to have to think. And I, I think that's um, a really a new kind of messiness that I'm interested in. Yeah, right, that's a kind of cool, yeah, cool kind of messiness. I think it's, you know, because I often respond to spaces or other people's work and that's, it gives me the same feeling. But I wonder, like, how do you decide what the wild card is? Like, for you, when you're, you know, when you're, uh, say, you've, like, you've been working on something and you've got that problem of it being, you know, too pristine, like, how do you decide? What, what is the wild card? Where does the wild card come from? Do you find it's like a, something innate or, you know, just, it's just, you know, is it random or is it, you know, is there, a, do you, is there like a chance element where you like, oh, that just happens to be there? And I think working, being a solitary worker so often, mm. I have this kind of annoying reflexive problem where I have to talk to myself about work. So sometimes it's, I think, the f to find the messiness, it's about finding a different way of, a different angle of just thinking about what you've done, you know, and then thinking, well, what if I thought about it this way? And that can be something you have to just kind of create yourself to sabotage, or I think in a collaboration, that messiness just naturally happens, and yeah. I also like to work collaboratively. I mean, I think I probably work half collaboratively, half on my own, sort of, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think it's all about that, you know, perspective or problem. Like the, someone sort of just shoving something in there that doesn't work with my idea. And I think I like to create things that don't work with the idea, even yeah, right. myself. You know, because it's interesting to me because I guess, I mean, you're, in, you're kind of, I guess, the first residency. Because for me, in this instance, when, you know, it's really nice and refreshing for you uh, to hear you say that because it's all, because it made me think that somehow you've, you're the wild card, you know, <laughs> you know, like the other people become the wild card. So I don't have to like think about the wild card, you know, in, in some ways. And then, then, you know, for you, I guess, Julie will become the wild card, even to a more, uh, you know, to the degree where sonically there will be, you know, with the synthesizer, there might be some interaction there that kind of, 
you know, overlaps what you've done. So um, it's nice to have a bunch of wildcards that you're completely not in control of, but it's also, you know, a little bit scary because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just don't know. But I guess that's the beauty of it. I mean, do you feel like that's what it is? Do you feel like, is it akin, you know, having this sonography, uh, which is the way I like to think about it somehow, and, you know, knowing that Julie will come in, knowing that people will come and write about it, do you feel like those are types of wild cards or, or not, or are they something different? I don't know if they're wild cards because I think the frame's just a wild card in that <laughs> sense. Like, you know, I mean... It, they're all just anarchy. ways of kind of breaking out of the form. So less, I don't know. They don't. I don't. I'm not worried so much about them being wild cards. I think I need to find my own wild card. Yeah. But um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, I was going to ask sort of a, on that topic about um, the sort of making visible those problems and the fact that you've got a sort of band in a bubble situation here, where the process of of making whatever that means, becomes visible to an audience. Um, are you interested in sort of making visible something that's invisible by doing that? Or are you interested in, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think it is. I've always been obsessed with like demystifying things, you know. If something interesting occurs and it's, I know it's you know, or you you know, you can think of it as magical or whatever, you know, like I don't know, like I don't know what's a good example. Um I can't think, you know, like I don't know, levitating magnets are kind of cool, you know, you see something levitating, you think it's you know, magical, but like I kind of you know, you know it's not, and I kind of like I, I really like the demystification of things. So I kind I've always had this obsession with keeping everything visible, everything that's possible that makes something. Is it important to you that that is interesting to the viewer? Um, I know that's a little bit of a facile question or something. I don't know. I it's don't like know, yeah. I, I don't know if it is or not. If it, if it is interesting or not interesting. I think, I think it's a kind of a reaction against this idea that somehow art is, an, is a magical thing. You know, and and thinking it's that only like only an artist can make art, you know, only, you know, uh, you know, some, you know, that's it's it's like somehow a separate thing, but you know, but it's actually attainable. It's like a really simple. It actually making you know, making something is really easy. It's it's almost like what we do before anything else, you know. Like I think children draw before they read and write. You know, mark making and making sounds, grunts and noise, you know, noises, uh, whether it's for communication or not, you know. Um, so, uh, and somehow as we get older, we sort of talk ourselves out of it, you know, you know, get it out of our systems. And probably artists are those people that don't ever grow out of it somehow, you know. Um, and then there's lots of, you know, I, I'm interested in people talking about... Uh, you know, art making is a very diluted form of shamanism in Western civilization, in Western contemporary society, because um, it engages with the other and tries to communicate something that's not really, you can't really communicate, you know, but you're trying, you're trying to grab this stuff and represent it. Um, I've lost my train of thought. What was the, what was the point? <laughs> No, it's fine. We've just gone somewhere else. But yeah. <laughs> I know it's made me think of about four other questions. I'm trying to think of the best way to go forward. Um, I kind of wanted to tease out this idea of the visible and the process yeah, with yeah, the, the idea of process. electricity yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if, I mean, it seems like when I saw the exhibition and I saw this, I thought, well, we could think of this in the sort of, like, as a really, a critiquing of, like, the institution and the, sort of structure of the museum and all this kind of stuff. But on the other hand, I was now you're talking about sort of, um, I guess, shamanism, mm -hmm. which is, I don't know if I feel totally comfortable talking about shamanism, mm -hmm. but I do want to um, talk about the idea of current and voltage mm -hmm. and electricity. And if that is um, somehow also the sort of the magic or the invisibility mm -hmm. being 
you know, conjured or if that means anything to you or if it's yeah. just a medium that happened to be workable? I mean, it does. I think there is a magic, you know, there is a magic to um, electricity, you know, because I think we often forget um, that electricity is a, is a naturally occurring phenomenon and it's very volatile. It's very, you know, we, we can't really control it. We can harness it and use it to, you know, run lights and bits and bobs, but, you know, you can't, it's, you know, you can't really measure, you know, if you measure, well, you can, and you can't, I mean, like, depends how deep you want to go, but essentially you can't, me you know, and that's a problem with measurement in general, or my feeling is you can't, <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's this kind of really um, kind of famous thing about electricity, you know, it kind of, flu it's, you know, the AC, the alternating current, is usually set at 50 hertz, in, and this is what the, the, the key of the, you know, the, all the sounds in here are octaves of 50 hertz, or harmonious uh, frequencies. Um, it's never really 50 hertz, it always fluctuates between 48 and 52, something like that, you know, and if you look at it on a, on a graph, it's the, the waveform is kind of really, like, chaotic. It's like a fingerprint, you know, it's like, it's like, it's, it's a live thing. And I think, um, so listening to electricity and also seeing it, you know, but more so listening to it, you're, you're encountering, you know, natural phenomena. So it's akin to like looking at the ocean or, or um, you know, watching is, clouds. Is in you think it's akin to looking at the ocean? I think, or? yeah, sorry. I think it's, okay. a, yeah, I, you know, it's akin, yeah. It's, you know, for me, it's totally that, you know. I, when I was a kid, well, I say kid, but like, you know, my teenage years and the reason I went to art school is because I used to paint seascapes. I used to just paint the sea. I was obsessed with waves. You know, at the time, I just thought I was obsessed with painting landscapes. You know, I wanted to be a landscape painter or something. But no, I was just obsessed with the chaotic nature of the landscape, the, you know, waves. And that's basically what I'm still obsessed with, you know. Um, the ebb and flow of... Uh, everything, the ebb and flow of, like, reality. Um, so, and I think, you know, for me, that's a really magical thing. So when you encounter, you know, electronic music in general, I guess, you know, synthesizer, you know, you know when, you, when you work with modular synths and things, which is exactly the same thing, you know, it's like a current just being made audible through various components. Uh, you're encountering the live sound of electricity, and you know probably more than anyone, you know, that... Um, when you record it, it's a slightly different thing. You know, it's like it's a, you lose something. And I think what you lose is the, is the chaotic liveness of it. And that's, I think that's the, only, that's the only thing for me which is magical because that's not, you know, and it's, it's the same as the water, you know, the water falling in that bin, you know, it's like all these like normal everyday things which are kind of boring, but just that sound, that chaotic sound of that water is somehow magical and nothing, you know, and immeasurable. I mean, I don't know. Do we, um, are we good for time or we can? Okay. Does, does anyone have the any? ocean of people. <laughs> when you are making a question, wait for the microphone. And if you don't mind, just because we are recording for disclaimer, if you could just state your name out before the question. Uh, hi, my name's Jade. Um, I was really interested in asking this question and I'm really glad you ended on that note of the chaotic liveness of your work. Because looking at images of your work, which I've done before seeing it, it's so different than watching videos or experiencing it in real life. And I was wondering what your relationship to the images of your work were, because they lack so much of what your work does. Yeah, we had a little discussion just today, because the show was being documented today, and um, the guy that documented it, is he here, or is he, he's, no. Um, what's his name? Andrew, yeah, he... Um, he said it's the hardest show he's ever documented. He was like, you know, he's done all the, documented all the shows here. And he, you know, he said it was really difficult, which it is. And part of me um, really likes that because, you know, there is this, 
I mean, it's a double-edged sword that it's kind of impossible to document, and so it's not like, you know, things exist everywhere now, you know, like now, you know, if an image doesn't work in square format, you know, whatever that is, like 150 pixels by 150 pixels or whatever, you know, whatever the format is on Instagram, then it doesn't work in real life, you know, then it's like, it's not going anywhere, you know. Um, and that's sort of a problem in one way, but it's also, I'm really like perversely happy about that because it's like a resistance against, you know, uh, these, sort, the, these certain media technologies that perhaps don't, that ignore, um, ignore, it, you know, it's like a, I guess it's an existential crisis, but like ex ignore like real space, you know, and time and, uh, and presence, just presence. Um, so it, so it is a problem, but it's also like a resistance against, you know, I kind of like the fact that my work can't be reproduced, you know, because an image is really like, doesn't, you know, doesn't say, I mean, maybe something like that is fine because, you know, there's no sound to it, but there is movement, but there's something like that doesn't really read. You can't, I mean, you can't, there's, it's probably 10% of what it feels like to be in the space. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. Um, it's a problem for me in a sort of in industry sense in a in terms of like you know capitalism but it's like a, it's a it's a, it's great in terms of like when you then do experience the work it's a it's a very different visceral you know thing that happens because it's about experience and i guess yeah we we spoke a little bit about recording, you know, and that kind of dynamic when you, because that's also reproduction, you know, and the difference between um, live things and recorded things, and it's the same sort of problem. It's a problem of reproduction. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you had any comments on. I just think it's nice to hear that you're, um not too hung up about it. Yeah, I um, yeah, I learned not to be, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the hard way. Hi. Hello, my name's Kerry. And Hi, Kerry. Uh, I'm kind of intrigued as to you mentioned the function of the pineal gland earlier. Um, and I remember reading somewhere that the the possibility that the pineal gland can not only receive but also transmit electromagnetic wave waves and uh, and being that there's so much talk of waves and chance and stuff that uh, what your thoughts are on on the possibility that like thought is electromagnetic wave propagation and what that whether did you just hear what I said or did you like get it <laughs> yeah right like yeah, as in yeah. like, like as in your yeah, yeah 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 sure did you read that in did you read that in uh, Jeremy Narby's book uh, no. oh right okay um, yeah, I mean, there is that idea that, uh, and it's, I guess it's to do with uh, DNA, that through photons you can emit and receive photons, and there's a communication, not amongst, just amongst humans, but interspecies communication. Um, and also, yeah, pineal, as a pineal function. Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I mean, these theories come from... Well, is that, is the possible, yeah, because like, you know, everyone's loving theories and now that, the, the, you know, the, it's a blank check these days with fake news and everything. <laughs> yeah, right. We, keep, we keep going with the theories, but like the, the idea of, um, uh, of whether or not there's thing, like, you know, is the, is the process of art making like a pro and, and exactly what you were describing as far as the, uh, the kind of, or what was being described by the last question, that's, uh, that the, the process of documenting and trapping somehow, like, you know, um, constraining, measuring, um, is a process of kind of constraining chance, like, you know, that chance is kind of like, um, ha has the pot potential for, you know, things beyond, um, uh, you know, beyond what we perceive as being possible, but like the algorithmic kind of closing down of chance is, uh, if, is by being measured and quantified on a moment to moment basis. But I don't know if that's got anything to do with the calcification of pineal glands that might, might be happening due to yeah. fluoride. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, the, I get what you're saying. There's a lot of things there. But yeah, in a way, <laughs> in a way there is, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying, you know, and it is like an open, you know, 
playground for all these things to come out, you know, including calcification or pineal function and, you know, whether toothpaste does that or not, you know, fluoride, you know, like, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, you know, scientists that I speak to say, you know, that's, there's, nothing, there's no evidence to show that fluoride, I, I know I'm going off kilter here, but fluoride's, you know, responsible for calcif calcifying uh, pineal gland. But there has been a recent study to show um, that, um, and this is in Alzheimer's patients, because that's also a type of calcification, it's also plaque that uh, begins to appear, um, may be caused by, um, may be caused by, certain neural oscillations failing, so certain brain waves not working anymore. But so by creating those same waves, those same frequencies, I think they're, I can't remember which frequencies they are, but I think they're kind of between uh, theta and alpha frequencies. By reproducing them with sound and light and you know, firing light into your eyes and hearing it simultaneously starts to reverse the process of calcification, starts to reduce the plaque. And they've, you know, the studies have shown this, uh, a couple of studies, and, and I think they're going to repeat the experiment and so on and so forth. So when you, when, you, you know, when you read studies like that, then you think, oh, okay, there is something going on with electromagnetism, which is beyond, you know, and then you can just, you can also just think, well, you know, when babies are born, you know, they communicate through body language and other, you know, like, languages are really just like this, it's quite a new technology, you know, when you think about Homo sapiens, it's only, you know, between 30 and 50,000 years old. And we've been around for about 200,000 years at least, you know, perhaps more. Um, so, yeah, all those things are just super interesting. But, you know, I can't, because I don't know, I can't sit here and go, yeah, you know, the pineal gland does this and that's it, because, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Let's drill the hole and find out. Pardon? Let's drill the hole and find <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, drill the hole, yeah. You can drill a hole in your, in your forehead. Apparently it doesn't hurt, you were saying. I know. <laughs> Hi, Harun. It's uh, David here, over here. <laughs> so, I'm a big fan of your work, as you know. Um, so... I, I, the thing that um, most intrigued me of the work, which I've only saw in the opening, they haven't been back to it, but it's, the, it's this space just behind you here. James's space. James's space. <laughs> well, because um, the talk about you know, chance composition and um, I guess that leads to notions of free will and all those kind of things, which we were getting on to early. But what that kind of reminds me of is, is what you know, traditionally is called a control room. Uh, that, that is, you know, the space quite often that um, when you go into sort of recording facilities, you don't get access to that space. You peer in through it, which we're doing there. And mm. it's kind of like a, a, a power, you know, there's kind of a, a certain power invested in that. And the, the fact that we can't um, access that space, mm. it, it's, it's quite a, you know, so it's quite a formidable uh, space for me. And maybe you could uh, perhaps um, just um, let us know what your thinking is behind, you know, that space and, and allowing us to not enter it but but just uh, view into it. Yeah, I mean, I never, you know, when I was thinking about the layout of the show in collaboration with Annika, we never, I never really thought about that thing, you know, like the glass separates the instrumentalist to the recording equipment scenario. But of, of course, that's kind of what it is, you know. Um, I don't know if, you know, you'll end up using it in that way, but I guess. Maybe not, but... Well, I guess there's one thing to flag is that we were talking um, and the possibility of actually working outside of the control room is definitely something we can do. So, um, that, but that also, yeah. you know, it also brings up this question of, like, the sonography of it and yeah. everything else, the visual sort of weight of it. Um, yeah. But on a practical level, I will just flag that it isn't sort of the be-all and end-all of this of the phase that I'm working in. You know? Absolutely. So I guess, you know, there is like uh, somehow an aestheticization or a fetishization of the control room. Uh, but it's also uh, goes a little bit back to what we're talking about, demystification and, and um, you know, opening up the project and revealing, you know, kind of 
the production, the process of the production, you know, the construction, as it were. Um, and it's more like a, you know, I guess it's more like a gesture in a way. And I don't really know, you know, like, you know, James has already brought up that, you know, there's probably instances where, you know, he's going to be working outside of here, you know, you know, that's kind of almost like, it's almost like a, yeah, so it becomes like a gesture in a way. I guess, you know, the fact that you do show it, in, in fact, shows um, um, mechanisms and processes that are often hidden. So by yeah. the same token, you are revealing yeah, what is so, usually yeah. hidden. So. And I think it's important to reveal that, even if it's, even if it's staged in some way, you know, it's a, you know, in terms of museology, you know, that's what happens in many respects, you know, you kind of, you know, it's not the, you know, often you go into a museum, I don't know if you go into like the V&A or something, you might have uh, a television or a synthesizer or something, you know, but it's an object, it's objectified, you can't touch it or play it, you know, you don't know what it's actually doing, you know, um, but you can kind of look at it. And it's a kind of, so it reads a bit like that, but also, you know, hopefully there will be moments where there'll be people in it for one reason or another. Um, maybe like the ACA team will start having meetings in there or something, you know, like <laughs> start a tea break or something. But, you know, there, hopefully there'll be something that's also active. So it'd be interesting to see how it plays out, to be honest, you know, because um, I, don't, I don't really know, you know, how, that, how it might function. On, on that note, just quickly, James, there was a, a photograph of a beautiful um, instrument that you mentioned someone had made for you. And Haroon, I understand there's a synthesizer that has been especially made for this studio. I wonder if you might, might James, speak to the instrument, the wooden <laughs> instrument, and also there's, then... I don't think there's a synthesizer being made for the studio, oh. unfortunately. Oh, but no, okay. I'm well, going to bring, I'm to bring the, in a, a little... Speak to the equipment that's in there, then, that was... Um... Uh, the equipment that was in the studio... Well, there's a, I mean, I was a little bit um, overwhelmed when I first got here because Harunan made this um, schematic that had this really insane looking diagram of how the sound was going to move through in the studio, in and out of the studio. Sorry but, about that. No, it's great. I it, lo- it was if great. I saw, I been well, it, it, you know, it helps, it helps you think differently about it. But basically all this sound from, I mean, not every single piece, but most of the pieces in the exhibition individually are fed into the studio as direct signal. And some of that is audio signal and some of it's actual control voltage. So if anyone who knows anything about electronics, it's, um, I mean, it's still audio in a sense, but you know, you've got these two kinds of signal flows and um, that work will then, that'll sort of be used in the studio as material that's manipulated. But um, also, I'll record with instruments, and um, as Miriam brought up, there'll be synthesizers and that crazy instrument that came up before, I think I'll bring in as well. But basically, we're going to record, and then that's going to go straight back out into the exhibition as part of it. So that's the, that's the kind of flow of it, right? Yeah, I guess. And that's also kind of a bit malleable. So um, I guess you don't have the CV. You don't have the control voltage coming in yet, but because it, it will plug into the Well, no, you're right, because I've just got an audio desk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, but that's another kind of option. Um, so, yeah, but then I think, Miriam, maybe you were talking about this instrument that's in one of these images, this kind of like, you said it's kind of a uh, sort of... Uh, medieval? A medieval, yeah, an ancient, <laughs> like, well, yeah, medieval instrument. Which sounds really, um, well, I don't know what it sounds like, but it looks amazing. Well, I don't know what it'll sound like here, but I think it'll sound pretty beautiful. Yeah. Actually, I mean, there are, I'm sure other people have questions, but I, did, I was kind of interested in the idea of this museum as a score. Yeah. You, you, someone mentioned that, I can't remember, or maybe we were just mm. talking about it. Is there a particular image of a score you have in mind? Not as in, like do you imagine a particular score, but like a model for a score, or do you see it as a, as a sonic score, or do you see it as a spatial score or a yeah. temporal score? I think it would more be like a yeah, spatial score, I guess. I find scores very difficult, because the only way I guess I work with scores is actually just in code. You know, it's literally like code, so that's the closest thing 
I get to a score, sometimes I sketch things out in lines and things, you know. But um, it's never how I sketch it out. It's always, you know, different. So I kind of stick to the numbers. Um, but a spatial score, I guess, yeah, seems to kind of work better. There was a question here as well. Oh, yeah, yeah you've got oh, the yeah. Right. yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I was just wondering whether you can see similarities um, with your collaboration with the work of Bene Benedict Drew. And um, I'm also wondering, just hearing you talk about your work, I'm feeling like your process is a process of like uh, formalism, form, formalism, and I'm just wondering if you can speak about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen that much of Benedict Drew's work, but I kind of, um, yeah, know of it, and um, yeah, know about his kind of processes and his kind of work with instrumentation, and uh, and it's, uh, yeah, super interesting work. I wish I knew more about it to comment on it, but then, uh, or, you know, kind of like, think about the relationship, but I, I, I unfortunately don't. Um, and, uh, but like the formal aspects, I guess, um, yeah, I've, I guess I went through a, a process of thinking about form and f formal notions about objects and images for a long time, but during, you know, the last, 15 years or so, I've tried to remove every, everything, you know, that I know, you know, know or understand about form and kind of try and ignore it. I, a few years ago, I, I installed a, I installed a show blindfolded because I didn't want to install the show visually. I wanted to install it completely acoustically um, to remove the idea of kind of space and form completely, just as an experiment. It was a very difficult process. There was also a kind of political side of it to do with um, cultural capitalism and um, this idea, because it, in, it was installed in a, the Cabousier House, Villa Savoie in, in Poissy, um, and, uh, and this idea that I'd never, I'll, never, I'll never actually see this house, so my experience with the house will remain acoustic. And I guess in that sense, um, yeah, I have this strange uh, relationship to form in that I, I, I'm consciously trying to break free of the parameters of aesthetic um, choice, you know, which goes back to chance, I guess. And how did you see... Uh, that process of being blindfolded relating to the the conceptual you know, um, background of that of what you were working towards in, um, and connecting that to Corbusier um, it was a difficult process because it caused a few problems you know the curator at the time wasn't happy with how the show looked <laughs> and uh, the uh, the people at the house got offended that I didn't want to see the house as well. So that it, was a, it was a bit of a mess, to be honest. And it wasn't like, you know, I have anything against Cavusier or the house. Actually, I have a few things against Cavusier. But, like, <laughs> but it wasn't really... Uh, um, it wasn't really... Uh, it wasn't a really easy process because of those things. And to be honest, it's, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I don't know... I, I can't, you know, I can't... Uh, imagine what it'd be like to, for someone to lose their uh, vision, but it's like, you know, it's a difficult thing, you know, if you, if you can see and then you can't see all of a sudden. It's a very traumatic thing. I did the same thing. I mean, the, in, to le the lead up to it, um, I sort of um, spent some time in, in, a, in a small village in, in France, uh, blindfolded, to try and sort of work my way up to this. And it's kind of really depressing. Um, but then um, the... Um, yeah, but what you then learn... The thing is, you can't get rid of the form because then the form just becomes acoustic somehow, you know? So it's a different type of form, you know? Um, yeah. 
What, from the Corbusier house? Uh, yeah, there's a film, there's a documentary, short documentary about it online. Um, if you Google, yeah, Villa Savoie and my name, I'm sure it will come up. How do you feel about wrapping up there? Is that... Yeah, I'm all right, unless anyone's got any other questions. I'm more eager all... to just get out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you'd all join me in thanking Haroon Mertzer and James Rushford for their generosity this evening. Uh, and the exhibition is on until November 17, uh, Tuesday to Sunday, and we have a range of public programs uh, which are available in a flyer um, that you can take home with you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you, Miriam. Yeah, Thank you. Everyone.